Hi, everyone. This is Evan, one of the co-hosts of the show. Many of you will have heard about the sudden and uh, tragic death of the journalist Grant Wall over the weekend while he was covering the World Cup. Um, this episode of the show is a conversation that Grant and I had back in 2016. And at the time, I was a huge fan of his work, uh, but I'd never met him. And after this interview, we became friends in the way that Grant seemed to with pretty much everyone that he encountered. And I was lucky enough to get to know him and to continue this conversation over the years about reporting and the journalism business and soccer, always soccer. And there have been a lot of beautiful tributes to Grant in the past few days from his many friends and colleagues. We'll link to some in the show notes. I don't know that I can add to them other than to echo what all of them say, which is that Grant embodied an extremely rare generosity of spirit. It was something you could feel every time you were around him. And it's the reason that you see such an outpouring of love and loss right now. He was also an incredible journalist who absolutely owned the soccer beat in America, particularly when it came to long form stories. He created the full-time soccer beat in America and he changed the sport, both men's and women's for the better. He had a tireless, uncynical enthusiasm for his work. And this interview, it might be a hard listen for some people. I know it was for me. It made me wish that I'd done another one with him and captured some of the conversation that we had had over beers and watching games. But I hope for the folks that want to know more about Grant's work and how he came to it and his passion for it, you'll be able to hear that here. So our condolences to his wife, Celine, and his whole family, and everyone who was close with Grant. I'll miss him. Here's our interview. Grant Wall, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. I have been following your work for so long, partly because I used to be really interested in college basketball. For some reason, I'm not as much anymore. Me neither. I'm gonna, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're off the beat. So, and I'm an obsessive soccer fan, as probably cool. like podcast listeners to this podcast will know. And there was a point at which you felt like you were the only person in America writing about soccer in like a serious way for like a serious publication. I wanted to first figure out how you got to that point to writing for Sports Illustrated. Um, because I read in an article somewhere, an interview that you did somewhere, that you at some point earlier in your life told your friends that you were going to be a Sports <laughs> Illustrated writer. So I got uh, for Christmas uh, in 1982 from my parents a gift subscription to Sports Illustrated magazine. Did it come with that football phone? They used to have like it a, was not like a the year of the thing. football phone, okay. so I actually missed out on it. Yeah, that's uh, true. unfortunately, um, but. Uh, it became something I read cover to cover every week. We would get it on Thursdays in Kansas City, where I grew up. And uh, really, that was sort of my way into this world. And even by a pretty early age, I knew I wasn't going to be a professional athlete. But uh, you had played sports, liked sports as a kid? or Yeah, I loved sports. You know, yeah. Growing up in Kansas, uh, KU basketball is a huge thing. Yeah. Uh, so that's how I got into college basketball. You know, there were other sports too. I was a huge Chiefs fan, huge Royals fan. 
you know, looking even in soccer terms, there were no outdoor teams at the time, but there was indoor soccer in Kansas City and oh the fabled God. Kansas City Comets <laughs> were a team that uh, I followed quite closely. But I started reading Sports Illustrated every week, felt like I got to know the writers. Yeah. You know, they had these unique voices and guys like Frank DeFord became these mythical hero figures to me. So I would totally fanboy out in college a couple of times when I got to meet Frank DeFord and and, uh, and he even allowed me to go interview him at his house during the 94 World Cup and I was a student and he had no reason to let me come and do this and, and talk to him about soccer, which is not his favorite sport, by no, the he's way. He's always shitting on soccer. Uh, often. Or he used to. Yeah, he still sort of does. But it, what's funny is he sort of accepted now that soccer's become something in, in the US. He's just not a big MLS guy now. But he was really cool to, to speak to me at that time. And by then, even toward the end of high school, I had told my friends, you know, I'd love to write for Sports Illustrated someday. I had never traveled outside the United States. I'd never been to the East Coast. The first time I ever went was to uh, visit Princeton, uh, where I'd gotten in. I figured, well, I should check this place out. And my whole family went to the University of Kansas. I thought I was going to go there too. Yeah. Long story short, got a nice financial deal and went to Princeton, where Frank DeFord went, where uh, a lot of writers that I really liked went, guys like David Remnick. I wanted to sort of do things that might give me a chance to actually work for Sports Illustrated someday. That was like the end goal. Really? Yeah. I don't know if I've ever talked to someone who like met like a life dream that they had so early so specifically. It causes you to kind of rearrange your goals when it happens that early, you know? Uh, yeah. So how did you get a job at Sports Illustrated? So I was probably a bit of a stalker, I think <laughs> is the best way to put it, in a sort of uncomfortable way at times. Uh, Frank DeFord taught a class at Princeton that was an application-only class uh, uh -huh. in the American Studies Department. And like there were 20 spots in the class and I had learned like more than 200 people applied. And I in the end did not get in because uh, you had to be a member of the American Studies Department, which, which I was not, uh -huh. as he explained to me after I sent him letter <laughs> after letter. When I say stalker, I'll, I'll, he may have forgotten this or put it out of his mind, but I, I don't forget that. And, <laughs> and your letter uh, just said, I want to be in your class. Someday I will write for Sports Illustrated. Here's this is the, my goal. Well, I, I tried not to be a jerk about <laughs> it, but I was just trying to explain to him how important it was to me. This is like my hero. Mm -hmm. who's teaching a class at my school and I can't get in mm -hmm. and did not get in. And I think he took pity on me and had lunch with me one day <laughs> when he was in town for the class and, and did that interview with me later on. But that was you know, one of the things I did in college to try and pursue all this stuff. Uh, I contacted Peter Carey, who was the number two guy at Sports Illustrated, another Princeton guy, you know, at least made some contacts as time went on and worked really hard you know, in doing writing on campus to yeah. try and get some good clips. But I struck out on internships in the summer at, at newspapers everywhere, you know, didn't have any luck with that. Took some classes, thankfully, that allowed me to have some really good experiences with legit writers. Mm -hmm. The best one for me early on was one with Gloria Emerson, who kind of strangely became this semi-best friend of mine at you know, this 70-year-old woman who was a former New York Times war correspondent mm -hmm. in Vietnam. Mm. I don't know how much people know of Gloria Emerson these days. She passed away a few years ago, but just an amazing, tough New Yorker who started out in fashion writing, uh -huh. 
ended up becoming a war correspondent and a legendary one in Vietnam. I, I guess you could call her my mentor. I mean, like, yeah. long story short, she ended up having a huge influence on on me wanting to go into writing uh-huh. and long form and uh-huh. all that stuff. So she actually let me have a key to her place and a room where I could do all of my writing. Another course I took later on in a magazine writing course in college was with David Remnick, uh, who subbed in for John McPhee. McPhee would teach this literature of fact course two out of every three years. Yeah, it's funny, like a, a number of people have been on the podcast who, who, took, who took that class, like yeah. John Seabrook talked about that yeah. class. And then I've heard David Remnick talk at points about when he took that class, wow. when he was there, I believe. Yeah, no, he did. And then yeah. uh, I happened to get in, uh, I think this was 95, it was a year that McPhee was not teaching it and Remnick was. Oh, interesting. And so I actually went down and I have it here, my, my old spiral notebook from Humanities 440, <laughs> Literature of Fact. Uh, and I was looking through it today and it's amazing to me how many of the things we talked about in that class 20 years ago about approaching writing a magazine story, reporting, organizing, writing a lead, uh, getting everything together, um, uh, structure. All of that stuff is stuff that I use now and use all the time. Yeah. Like I haven't really deviated from a lot of that. It strikes me that that class is like a an expert class. Like it's a class like, it's like if you were taking like pre-med classes and then some brain surgeon came in and taught you like the best brain surgeon was basically like here's how you do brain surgery but then if you actually leave undergraduate and get a job like no one's going to sign you that story that needs to be structured in the like aggh like the way that john mcphee requires like a huge so obviously you like you got that knowledge which you still use today and then how long did it take it before you actually applied that knowledge to stuff you were able to work on well Thankfully, there were some opportunities earlier on, not for a big audience. One of the great things about having a seminar like that with a Remnick or a McPhee or a Gloria Emerson is that here are people who are being paid basically to care about you and what you're doing. <laughs> right. And they do care. I mean, they're, they, yeah. they really, they're not just being, doing it for the money, but I had not done anything to that point to actually deserve having someone of that stature you know, work with me that closely on something. Mm -hmm. None of us had. Yeah. And yet they do. And so that opportunity is something that I just didn't want to pass up. And so when I would take these writing seminars, honestly, I wouldn't focus that much on my other classes or some of my other work that semester. I would focus mostly on these writing classes Mm -hmm. and put a lot into it. I remember in Remnick's course, we had a big project, a big magazine article we had to write uh, yeah, right. by the end of the semester. And I wrote mine on Gloria Emerson, oh, which really? was kind of an interesting full circle thing. Huh. But here was a, someone who was a public figure. She won a National Book Award in 1977, who admitted that she kind of couldn't leave the Vietnam War behind. Yeah. And that, in essence, became my story. So th- that whole class just was able to kind of one of the few things that told me I want to do this yeah, for a living, but it's one thing to kind of want to do that and then to actually do it. But I got to use some of those techniques that we're talking about in some long form stories. The summer of 94, World Cup year in the United States, mm-hmm. by the way. Yeah, I was between my sophomore and junior years of college, had won a scholarship that allowed me to spend three weeks in Argentina uh, and then three weeks in Boston 
reporting on, as I pitched it, the cultures around the sports of soccer in Argentina and baseball in mm. Boston. Mm-hmm. Plus, Argentina was playing in the World Cup, their first two games in Boston. Yeah. So I went to those. Yeah. And this was the first time I'd ever left the United States. I actually have that notebook, too. I was going through this <laughs> really? morning. Just, just to kind of like, it was fun to kind of go back and see the, the journal entries I was writing. Just like, first day in Argentina, you know? Yeah. Uh, and just was trying to find good stories to, to write about. And so I did a number of things in Buenos Aires. The most interesting one was I traveled overnight with the hardcore fans of Boca Juniors. Yeah. And all these Argentines are telling me, what are you doing? You're going to die. These people will kill people. And we had to travel overnight because they had problems with the cops stopping them if they traveled during the day. We go to Rosario for a game against uh, Rosario Central. Um, and I, they kind of welcomed me into their little culture. And I ended up writing about that. Mm-hmm. Then went to Boston, did a lot of stuff with the like Red Sox and baseball culture in Boston and used these techniques that... I had sort of learned in, in Remnick's course of, you know, when you're reporting, get all of your stuff into one file, you yeah. know, all of your interviews, get, you know, organize it, yeah. you know, follow your instincts on how many people you talk to, how much reporting you do before you're, you're ready to go to write, write a lead section first. And in going back through McPhee's notes, it was interesting because his whole thing was your lead section, your lead should have should shine a light through the rest of the story, uh-huh. which I thought was a cool turn of phrase. Yeah, For McPhee, he would get so sort of blocked by writer's block that he would tell stories about tying himself to a chair, mm-hmm. you know, to actually get the writing done. But in this shows what a horrible imitator I was. The first couple of years when I was writing, I would literally tie myself <laughs> to a chair. Writing was going to be an intense thing, but it was going to be a really rewarding thing. And that trip to Argentina and Boston that summer and, and the writing that resulted from it, you know, I I knew I wanted to do this. Is that what got you the job at Sports Illustrated initially? I think it helped. I started out as a fact checker. I got an offer in the spring of my senior year of college uh, from Bambi Wolf, who was the chief of reporters and who... I would argue has had a bigger influence on Sports Illustrated as a whole than maybe any other person of the last 20, 30 years because she hired so many young writers who ended up being writers at Sports Illustrated. Yeah. I decided to go to Sports Illustrated as a fact checker. I was going to give myself three years. If I'm not a full-time writer after three years, I'm going to get a newspaper job somewhere. Did you like fact-checking? I was also a fact-checker. Ooh, I didn't love it, Yeah, but I had a huge respect for it. It's not pleasant. It is kind of a, a thankless job in the sense of people only really notice when you screw up, but you also got to see process and how a, a great writer works. You know, I remember fact-checking Bill Knack's story on Roy Williams, probably in 98, 99, and just seeing how he went about what he did was hugely educational mm-hmm. and talking with him as the story went through the the edit process. So, you know, those experiences were pretty amazing. And within the three years, you did you start to get assignments and start to find your way into, into writing? Yeah, I did. Uh, it happened faster than three years, actually. So, you know, just little things came up. Uh, my first story ever was on the Howard University soccer team from... Uh, the early 1970s. And 
this was obviously many years after this team had played, but it was a story about how they were the first team from a historically black college to win an NCAA Division I title in any sport. Hmm. And this was a team at Howard mostly made up of guys from the Caribbean, guys from Africa, a few black Americans. And they very controversially had their title, first title stripped from them. And it became a real big thing with uh, accusations of racism at the NCA. Their title was supposedly stripped because they had foreign they had had some they, test scores that didn't meet the NCA's standards, but some of these guys were from countries where they didn't even give the test and, uh-huh. and were like really good students in school. And, and it was it was weird. Yeah. And then after it was stripped, they actually came back in 74 and won the title again and kept it this time. Yeah, and a good so story. It was a good story. In fact, they're doing... Um, I think they're doing a 30 for 30 on it now. I was just about to say, it sounds like a movie. And, you know, those guys, the captain of the team are still in the DC area. And and, uh, there was, it was a really significant thing in the sense that at the time they were talking about this guys who ran things at the university would speak to the team. And they're like, this is, you guys are a representation of the slave trade in the sense that there's the, the triangle of the Caribbean, Africa, in the United States, that you're this triangle of blackness. You represent more than just a team. And they looked at themselves as representing that more than that, as, as did people on campus. And for that to be my first story, I felt That's pretty good pretty about it. pretty great first story. Uh, and for it to be a soccer story, because at that time, I had no idea I would become a full-time soccer person eventually. Um, yeah, so it kind of went like that. There were a couple of interesting stories that came up where they would let me out of fact-checking duties for a couple of days. Uh-huh. I went out to Wyoming. Uh, this tiny town called Evanston, Wyoming, and did a story on the Jamaican bobsled team, basically trying to find a way to get back to the Olympics in 98. But this was like the number two team. They had one guy from the famous team they made the movie off of, which they themselves had made no money off of. And so here were the Jamaican guys trying to train, but like working for Domino's Delivery in this tiny town in Wyoming that was all white. Yeah, And... What was cool was, was after the story came out, they got some funding and actually ended up going to the Nagano Olympics. So a couple of stories like this, um, in addition to the fact checking, like by, I guess one year into my time there, I became a full-time writer. So you started on the college basketball beat? Is that where you started or did they, did you have a beat at the beginning? I had a beat, but I was, I had been fact checking for it. So, you know, I was basically, when I was writing, I would, I would do these short little one page you know, news of the week type things inside yeah. college basketball, which were fun for me because I was able to travel around and go to games at Kentucky where I'd never been before, or North Carolina, or and meet people and build sources and relationships. And now I do soccer on the side. Getting soccer in the magazine was really tough. And, yeah. you know, the 94 World Cup had definitely been something they covered, but that was a gigantic event in the United States. And so when I got there in 96, one of the few things we actually covered in the magazine was the NCA Soccer Final Four. Yeah. Which isn't that big at this point. We don't even really cover it much anymore. And then 98 was probably like the big change for kind of me doing longer stuff. That was the year that John Wertheim and I pitched a story on out of wedlock kids in sports. I went back and, and was reading that that piece. And um, I'm interested in how, how it came about. I mean, I feel like there was a very delicate thing in there where uh, you were kind of delving into this issue, which was very much like, uh, in a way, accusatory. You've got these 
these players, particularly basketball players, there are a lot of basketball players in there who have a lot of out-of-wedlock children. And then there was this part where it sort of like stood back and said like, this could easily be seen through a lens of race and it shouldn't be. And I'm interested when you do that kind of story for Sports Illustrated, sort of uh, how does an institution like that approach that sort of thing? All along, I sort of thought that because we were these... 24 and 25 year old guys that they would probably give the info to some other better writer who would then write oh, really? it. Yeah. Didn't happen. They they trusted us. They they let us do it. And I think working with John on that was just a really positive experience because I think we both were sensitive to the racial aspects of the story, but also knew that it wasn't a black only thing. I mean. Larry Bird and his daughter and Yeah, that, that was story. a big part of that story. We literally holed up for a week in a small office in New York and, and wrote that story together. Sometimes co-byline stories are done differently where one guy will write and then another person will come in afterward. But mm -hmm. this was literally just the two of us sitting at a screen together and writing. Whoa, um, that's intense. You know, we had guys like Sean Camp who were clearly, they had some pretty egregious examples um, I forget how many kids he had with how many women, but I think it was like maybe nine with eight. And we got letters afterwards saying it's actually more than that. You know? Oh, wow. Um, I remember they put a two-year-old kid on the cover, Greg Miner's son. Really well done uh, portraits taken for the story. But I got to admit, when I first saw the two-year-old on the, on the front of the magazine saying, where's daddy? I was like, oh my gosh, uh, I don't know if that's what I was thinking of. I'm still curious about what this kid now thinks about being on the cover of Sports Illustrated because he would be how old now? Probably 19. Yeah. So wow. maybe not a bad idea to try and track him That's down and story. find out. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that story was in some ways foreshadowing for some of the stuff you see now around like the NFL and Ray Rice and domestic abuse. I mean, it wasn't about domestic abuse, although there was a little bit in there. I think a couple of the players had been accused or, or convicted of or something. But um, now there's this question of like, are these are publications, whether it's SI and their connections or ESPN in some ways, like beholden to these leagues in various ways and like can't report on them? And that seemed like almost like a simpler time in some ways where yeah. was it a big deal to report so negatively on the sports? I, I don't think the NBA was entirely thrilled with the stories. I, I would imagine not. I remember the week it came out, I was not credentialed for a Knicks playoff game. Hmm one of the rare NBA games I was assigned to cover. But I've never had anyone at Sports Illustrated tell me that I can't write something. Yeah, You'll never have, at least I've never had anyone say to me, we can't write about this because of an advertiser relationship or because of some deal on the business side. Uh -huh. And you, you also, you know, you wrote this book about David Beckham and his experience in, at, at the LA Galaxy. Uh, and that for that book you had uh access that i felt like after reading it uh they probably regretted giving you, you... <laughs> you have to ask them on that one but maybe but i'm curious how you negotiate i mean how do you get that kind of access david beckham was the most famous athlete in the world probably maybe you could argue about michael jordan or someone else but one of the most famous athletes superstars celebrities in the world and it seemed like you were completely inside this organization, both talking to him, but also all of these business people around it. How did that come about? A lot of things came together on that one. Um, so Beckham comes in 2007 that summer to play in LA. And it's 
one of the biggest stories of that summer, not just in sports. I mean, there were, it was crazy the attention yeah. that was being paid, like it, on Entertainment Tonight and and just in general. Uh, at this Beckham, point, you've been covering soccer for for Sports Illustrated for a while, for a long time. So yeah. I was doing my first World Cup was '98 in France, which was a wonderful experience. And then Beckham signs with LA in early '07. They were interested, Beckham's people, in doing a big SI story and mm -hmm. being a cover story um, of him arriving that they mm -hmm. were going to participate in. And mm -hmm. that was the second story I'd done on Beckham. I'd done a big like 10 page magazine story in 03, sort of introducing him to wider America. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that had gone well, had a really nice long interview with him and a bizarre interview with Victoria, who I kind of love, actually. Uh, I'm doing this interview with Beckham. And then her publicist says, you know, do you wish to speak to Victoria? And I'm like, yeah, sure, why not? Because they're doing like photo shoots at the, like in New York. So he was doing a photo shoot for Sports Illustrated. She was doing one for some celebrity magazine. Uh -huh. And she's standing there and I go over and, and say hello. And, and so I, my first question was, so how do you think you most influenced David over the years? She looks at me and she's like, well, I think I've really changed his dress sense. And I go, what do you mean by that? She's like, well, you know, he used to wear his pants really high. Now he wears them much lower. And, and I looked at her and I was wondering if like there was a joke, if I was, if I was the joke, I was yeah. the joke basically. <laughs> um, and actually it got a little better from there. So that story worked out fine. The story in 07 worked out fine. And then I got approached by a publisher, Crown, that was interested in having me write a book about Beckham's first year, yeah. first half year in LA. Oh, so they came to you with that idea. Yeah, they did. Oh. So I was living in Baltimore, but covering this team in Los Angeles while also working full-time for Sports Illustrated. Why are you living in Baltimore? Uh, my wife was there. She's a doctor, so she was at Johns Hopkins. Ah. So I started following uh, Beckham and the Galaxy. And I think part of it was I had a good relationship with Beckham, had a really good relationship with everyone at the Galaxy that a lot of people I'd known for a long time. Mm -hmm. And they had just seen this cover story that was great publicity for the LA Galaxy. And I think that's where that access for the book kind of came from. Mm -hmm. Even then, even though I had a good relationship with Beckham's people, they did not want to give me one-on-one -on -one access to Beckham for the book. They were cool for Sports Illustrated. Yeah. Uh, but like they indicated that like it would take like a million dollars to get Beckham to participate one-on-one -on -one for the book. And even then they would have control of the book. They literally said, you will pay us in order to get access to this Because their person. view of it was, and maybe this is a, a very British view, was a book is either authorized or unauthorized. Mm -hmm. There's no in-between. Hmm. In their terminology, this was going to be an unauthorized book. It's still a bit of a miscalculation, I think, on their part, because everyone else did talk to me one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. over the next year and a half. Mm -hmm. You know, Beckham's voice is all throughout the book. One, because I was able to use, thanks to Sports Illustrated, my interviews uh, with see. him for SI. Uh -huh. And he did press conferences before and after every game, so I was able to ask questions. It just wasn't one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, I see. And then there was all this drama going on behind the scenes. And... Uh, I was putting in the time to to be around and set up interviews and guys like Alexi Lawless and Tim Lywicki and Landon Donovan um, and Alan Gordon and Chris Klein, all these guys within the team were regularly talking to me and to their credit continued talking to me even when they weren't doing well 
on the field. Yeah, and there was turmoil all around it. I mean, that was the that's the thing that strikes me so much about that book is that if you told me in advance of you writing that book, I'm doing a, a book about the first year of David Beckham in L.A., I would say, I don't know, that, that could be a really, really boring book because <laughs> like... Uh, he because he's he's so he's such a celebrity that yeah. you're never going to get anything good and no one's going to say anything bad about him because he's making all the money and whatever and so the actual stuff in that book I just imagined you doing the reporting and just like just like tell me more tell me more but how did you I mean the players were so honest with you that's what surprises me they told you stuff that they shouldn't they probably shouldn't have probably I think part of it is is that U.S. soccer and MLS weren't quite in the same position then or now to be honest but especially then mm -hmm. as like the nfl or the nba today and so if you're a journalist you can get more access mm -hmm. it's almost like a business book in some ways not a business not a certain type of business book but there's a lot in there about just like the business of sports and mm -hmm. the ownership and like who's actually running the show and the celebrity culture and all this stuff do you feel cynical about the business of sports i don't uh which is i think good. I guess I understand the game. Um, I also understand that there's a lot of good people who play the game mm -hmm. and a lot of good intentions. You know, I'm around the soccer community in the U.S. more than anything, and uh, there's not much cynicism in the soccer community. One of the reasons I wanted to push to cover soccer full-time back in 2009 when I finally did was because I like covering the people involved. Do they feel different from people in other professional um, sports? To way. me, yeah. you know, it's a little bit like what we were talking about earlier, where the variety of stories in soccer globally, because the volume is so big, is huge. Yeah. That's that's what I want. I want to tell stories. And the American soccer player, both male and female, they're pretty great to work with. You know, I mean, there's not a lot of divas huh. in this sport. They want to talk to you. Yeah. And maybe that's because they've experienced that this sport is not as big here as it is in other countries and they're a little more humble. But there's also this uh, kind of, it seems like there's a flip side to that, which is in the US, you can talk to, you can go interview these players and they kind of want to be interviewed. But you also do stories about these global stars like Mario Balotelli or Luis Suarez or people like that who you're kind of maybe introducing them to an American audience that doesn't know them, but they are the like, huge super celebrity who never wants to talk to anyone does it feel like getting like blood from a stone to like, get <laughs> anything out of these people when you sit down like when you prepare you know to to profile mario balotelli like how do you go about saying okay how am i gonna get a full story out of this it's a challenge and it's not so one thing i've learned over the years is the top european soccer figures whether they're players whether they're coaches, whether they're teams, they want to be bigger in the U.S. Huh. And as a result, they're willing to often provide access to U.S. media that they don't provide to much of their own oh, really? media. Huh. And that's something I've really tried to leverage over the years. And it's worked out on a, on a lot of occasions. Um, you know, with Balotelli... I'm a little bummed out his career hasn't taken off the last couple of years like it, it looked like it would have been. Yeah. But I found him, have always found him to be a fascinating figure and started laying the groundwork for a story with uh, on him after the Euro 2012 tournament um, where he had two goals in the semis. They beat Germany, got to the final. 
and you're like, wow, this guy isn't just about potential and and yeah. lunatic behavior. Yeah, he was like breaking out as you a know, player. This yeah. guy, but he also had this human story where if you remember that game, he went to hug his white mother, his adoptive mother in the crowd uh, after the game. And it was a really cool image that sort of went against a lot of what we had seen in the British tabloids about Balotelli during his time at Man City, especially. Yeah. Is he a knucklehead? Yeah. Yeah, he is at times. But I also think he's a pretty innocent guy and the knucklehead behavior that he's done is pretty harmless. And so I had seen a couple of instances where he had given interviews, not many because he didn't. And what kind of came through was he spoke better English than anyone, just about anyone realized. Uh-huh. He was a lot more thoughtful than anyone gave him credit for. Yeah. And so I'm like, that might be a really good magazine story. Yeah, he's got a crazy backstory. I mean, he's a- Yeah, adopted by uh, a family in Brescia, was born in Italy, but not allowed uh, to be a citizen until he turned, I think it was 18. Right. Due to laws in Italy. You know, he's had to deal with a lot of racism in a country that has a lot of racism still, especially connected to soccer. Yeah. So when you say laying the groundwork, what does that technically entail for like setting up to try to get some kind of profile like this landed? So keep in mind that my first contact, this was year 2012 during the tournament, I contacted his agent, a guy named Mina Raiola, who is like the Scott Boris of Europe. Mm -hmm. And Scott Boris, for those who don't know, is like the super agent of sports in America. And Mina Raiola himself is probably worthy of a magazine story because he's like from this like family that had a pizza store and a restaurant uh, and he made himself the biggest agent in European soccer, just about. So Mino's response was, uh, I got his email, sent him the pitch, and he's like, it has to be a cover. And I was like, ah, I can't do that. You know, we don't promise covers. And so we kind of went back and forth for a long time. And then, so that was 2012. And so the cover didn't happen until August, I think, of 2013. And Balotelli had moved to AC Milan. Uh-huh. And... Uh, I'm pretty tight with one of their directors there, a guy named Umberto Gandini, who loves American sports, had read my Beckham book, and really nice man who uh, worked with Mino and Mario to get them to agree Uh to do this. And and also saying like, look, this has a really good chance of being on the cover. We just can't guarantee it. Right, yeah. And so we met up in Miami in uh, August of 2013 when the team was over here and did this crazy photo shoot on a pool at this Miami hotel that made it look like he was standing on the surface of the water. Yeah. And I remember having to persuade Mario to do this. And I had just met the guy like two minutes earlier, right? (laughs) And so my first task is to help Jeffrey Salter, a terrific photographer, convince Mario to stand on this clear, uh, plexiglass surface on a on, in the pool uh-huh. in in the sun for about forty five minutes to pose for these photos. And then you get what you get like a set amount of time with him. And then I was going to get time for an interview, which was I think promised at thirty minutes and went to more like forty five fifty. Hmm. Do you prepare like an opener? Or do you just kind of go with the flow? I'm going to meet this guy and chat, and like I'm going to rely on my natural charm. Or are you sort of like I'm going to try to start here and maybe he'll open up. I think one of the first things I said to him was, because I followed his Twitter feed, knew what he was into. 
he's big into President Obama, of all people. But I mean, maybe not that surprising. Mm. Uh, and and mm-hmm. I said to him, I know you're into President Obama. There's a decent chance that he might read this story. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. He, he kind of perked up. I don't think I was deliberately misleading him. There was a chance. It'd be great um, if he just used that with every player. You know that uh, President Obama might might read this story. I just want to let you know before we start. And um, and so it was great. His English was wonderful. Um, he was able to really dig deep, I thought, and talked a lot in a very thoughtful way about racism, what he had experienced in Italy and elsewhere what he symbolized, that he was aware of much more than people thought that he had kind of let on. And one thing I was really glad about when people read the story, a lot of them said, wow, I didn't realize that he was that thoughtful. Yeah. While we're talking, I'm going to ask you one more question about profiles while we're talking about profiles. Um, because I was reading back these para profiles, one of which is very famous, which is the one you did of LeBron James when he was a junior in high school. Right. So he was 17 years old and it was this big deal. He was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And what was the cover line? That the he, Chosen One. The Chosen One, which he later got as a tattoo. I saw you I give said. credit to Greg Kelly, the SI editor, who came up with that cover line because he got as a tattoo. That's influence. Uh, that's actually what I want to ask you about because a couple years later, you did a profile of Freddie Adu, mm-hmm. who was, for, you wrote about him when he was 13 and then when he was 14, starting out. And if you look at these two people, the thing that was making me think a lot about was sort of like the influence of these stories over these people's lives. So clearly right. you had one who was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, hyped uh, in a way that no teenager maybe should be right. and could completely handle it and is now you know a famous sports figure and player. And then another one who it seems like maybe couldn't handle it or right. at least was not necessarily worthy of it and now is in a different place still playing sports but at a completely different level do you think about the influence that these stories will have on the people themselves yeah and like especially freddie adu as a teenager like did or both of these guys as teenagers did you think about what does it mean to like put these guys in this magazine i think the longer i've been in this business and the older i've gotten the more you really do realize how much national media, international media attention impacts a young athlete. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you mentioned this because in the context, this is right around the same time uh, these stories were being done on LeBron James and Freddie Adu. Mm -hmm. One guy makes it, the other guy doesn't. And there were some similarities in those stories in that you almost have to have the obligatory two paragraphs where you throw in the caveats of like, you know, it's not guaranteed that he's going to make it, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. But there's a reason you're writing the story. And so you try to just find people who you trust, uh, who see the talent and can tell you about where the potential is and, and where the pitfalls might be mm-hmm. uh, and, and try to strike a balance. I remember when they decided to put LeBron on the cover as a junior in high school, it was during the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake. And I was surprised that they would do a non-Olympic cover during that time. But then you also, I'd spent a lot of time with LeBron for that story. The timing seemed right. He'd had a huge uh, ABCD camp the previous summer and uh, had a really good experience. Flew into Akron and uh, met him and his buddies they all piled into my rental car and we drove to 
Cleveland from Akron for an NBA game mm -hmm. that had Michael Jordan in it. Yeah. And Jordan hits a buzzer beater to win at the end. Did you know that was your lead when you when they got into the car with you? Uh, usually you have a pretty good idea on uh, on a lead when you witness it or hear it told or or what have you. Kind of an instinctual thing. And after the game, Jordan comes out to talk to LeBron. And it wasn't the first time they'd met, but like I'm just kind of lurking and getting seen stuff. And there was so much going on there because you had the guy who was actually bringing Jordan out to meet LeBron was William Wesley, Worldwide West, the kind of most famous uh, connector in the basketball world in the United States. Not everyone really knows what he does, but he knows everybody. Yeah. So. For me, I think I said this in the story, it was like that picture of, of John F. Kennedy meeting a young Bill Clinton, you know, where it was that kind of a vibe. You know, LeBron was that good, mm -hmm. you know? And I remember having Danny Ainge tell me in that story, like there are only a couple of players in the NBA I would not, tr I would trade him for now. I mean, you put in the, the obligatory paragraphs like, well, he could turn out to be a bust, but did yeah. you think if he turns out to be a bust and they put him on the cover, I am going to look like a fool? There's some of that. I remember being, we had gone to a McDonald's drive-thru on the way to Cleveland. And I remember just kind of offhandedly saying to LeBron, I was like, there, you know, there's a chance you could be on the cover of Sports Illustrated here. <laughs> and he got this kind of look on his face. And I don't think you really understand in that situation what how it will change your life, at least especially then, until it happens. Mm -hmm. There's a documentary film that he was a part of about that time uh, that he talks about the impact. Mm. It was big, but he was able to to get through it. He had a crazy senior year uh, where he got suspended for accepting jerseys as gifts, you know, throwbacks and. And there's a lot of controversy and, and that was a lot of stuff for him to, to fight through. But I remember writing in that story, like he might even get a $20 million shoe deal. Well, it was like a $90 million deal <laughs> when he signed it, you know? So, um, you know, it was just, you compare that to Freddie Adu and, and for the story in 04, I remember going to Tampa where they were doing a photo shoot, a TV commercial shoot with Freddie Adu and Pele. The highest paid player in the league was 14. And so a lot of people got carried away yeah. on that one. And so clearly there's an example that it's not guaranteed the success and the attention hurt Freddie Adu. Yeah. Uh, who was younger, we think, than, uh, than LeBron <laughs> was by, by a couple of years. It, it's just a, a sad story in many ways, I think, with Freddie. And for me, like, I've always thought he's actually a pretty good guy. I, I went back and did a story on him in 2010 when he was in Greece for the magazine, spent some time with him. He's always been a pretty good guy to hang out with, go out to dinner with. Um, you just wish that he had had more opportunities and had taken advantage of those opportunities at club level to to build a career. Yeah. We talked about, you know, you had a, a goal as when you were younger of writing for Sports Illustrated and you achieved that goal, like, relatively young, do you have a, a next aspirational goal in terms of your writing or your journalism? Like, do you want to move beyond sports at some point? Is there sports for the rest of your life that you could be content covering? You know, I, I don't 
know exactly uh, where it's going to go from here. My FIFA presidential campaign didn't exactly work out. Oh, yeah, in the we end didn't talk about in, that in 2011. You ran for president of FIFA. That again was sort of prescient. <laughs> that was before all of these takedown uh, yes. scandals. Yeah, and it was fun. I caused them to change their rules. Where to run for FIFA president now? You literally have to be an insider and, and have like two of the previous five years in football administration, soccer yeah. administration, which is actually a problem because if you had an, an outsider like a Kofi Annan, who I think would be great to take over a new FIFA, according to their rules right now, he cannot run. Right. I had a good experience doing it in 2011. It was fun. It uh, it got people to thinking, I think, why does no one ever run against this set bladder guy? And really put out some of the, like, honestly, common sense issues um, that needed to be considered about making FIFA cleaner or trying to, or, or getting it at a point where it wasn't this kind of joke of an organization. Although the thing that could have happened was that you could have won and then gotten caught up in the corruption and you yourself could be in prison right now. <laughs> have you thought about that? You uh, could, it could have been irresistible. I was going to do a WikiLeaks on FIFA. That was one of my campaign promises. Put everything out there. Um, I had some fun conversations with people like the Iceland Soccer Federation president who was very nice and actually listened to me and then decided not to nominate me. So you're not going to be FIFA president. Do you have any sense of where where you want to go journalistically in 10 years or something like that? I guess part of it is that I don't, I've never had sort of a, aside from like this, I want to go to Sports Illustrated thing. I never would have predicted I would do soccer full time. Yeah. And, I, and that's happened. You know, I'd love to say this was all planned and inevitable, but it really wasn't. Uh, the sport has grown a ton. It's got a lot more growing to do, I think. Uh, I don't know if soccer is ever going to be the NFL in the U.S., but it's certainly... I hope not. Yeah, seriously. But it's it's definitely gotten bigger. Uh, and I really enjoy it. I don't follow a lot of other sports at this point. Even college basketball, I, I couldn't tell you much at all about what's going on. And I enjoyed covering that sport. Hmm. My wife doesn't like sports, so I don't really spend much off time following it. And covering soccer, if you want to be on top of what's happening in the soccer world, you, you really don't want to shortchange your readers, viewers, and you need to spend a lot of time being on top of stuff. That was Grant Wall in 2016. This episode was originally edited by Jenna Weiss-Berman and then this week by Jackie Sajiko. I'm Evan Ratliff. Myself, Max Linsky, and Aaron Lammer, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.